Welcome to the LDS Life Podcast. To contact Kevin Williams, send him an email at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. You can also visit his Facebook page at LDS Life Podcast. It is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. It is Wednesday, March. It is Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. Michelle and Marshall Moore are my guests. How are you folks tonight? Doing very well. Thank you for having us on tonight. Yeah, Absolutely. we're excited to be with you. It's an honor. Now, I don't know if you've heard anything about me from uh, the old folks, uh, Stephanie and Kels. I had them on a year ago. Um, let me just start. Uh, I'll, uh, either one of you can answer this question at first. Um, Michelle and uh, Marshall, is there anything about your childhood that you want to talk about or anything that's significant? Well, I personally think my husband's childhood is pretty <laughs> remarkable and exciting. Um, and it really relates to, you know, the, our, I guess our love for cinema and, um, and I think it's a fun story. So I think you should share it. Well. My childhood is complicated, <laughs> Okay, but when, yeah. it, when it comes, no, when it comes to the uh, LDS church um, and, uh, and cinema, I, I, I suppose uh, I go back to probably around the time I was 10, 10 years old, uh, living in Los Angeles, California. Uh, my parents were divorced at that time. And my, my dad had met someone to, she was a, a acting uh, teacher. She ran a, a theater program and um, she lived out in Riverside. So, you know, about an hour outside of, uh, outside of Los Angeles. And, you know, I grew up in the city in the smog and in an apartment building, you know, lots of traffic around and she sort of lived in the country. So during the course of their getting to know each other and him being in the theater program, they said, Hey, why don't you, um, why don't you come out to her house for the weekend and um, come out to the country, breathe some fresh air and, and all that. So little did I know that when I said, sure, I would do that and bring my BB gun so I could, you know, hunt rabbits in the fields or whatever I was going to do, um, that I, she was going to take me to church. <laughs> uh, turned out oh, she wow. was a member. Of, yeah, it turns out she was a member of the LDS church. My father was not. Um, but, but, you know, because of that relationship, I, uh, you know, went out there on the weekend and then on Sunday, I, I, I went to church and I'd never been to church before. My family was not a church going, uh, group of, uh, people. Uh, so this was all new to me. So, uh, you know, I went to church and I go, this feels pretty good. It feels something about it felt different, felt right. And then just kind of from there, you know, every other weekend, it seemed like I was out there in the country and I was going, going to church. And then two years later, that eventually led to me being baptized as the only member of my, my father didn't get baptized. My mother didn't. I, I took the missionary discussions on my own with their permission and uh, ended up joining the church at the age of 12 in 1974. So that, that's, that was my path to joining the LDS church. And from there, in the course of the discussions, of course, I saw the first vision and I thought, wow, that's really good filmmaking. You know, that's, that's really good acting. And it really impressed me too. Like it got to my heart. Uh, like I felt like everything that I was seeing, feeling were, was, was real and it was testifying to me. And it was through the medium of film 
So it's my first experience. I'm like, wow, these the, the people at Hildy's Church, they know how to make movies too. And my family, see, my family was uh, also into the film and television. My uh, mom was an actress and my, my dad acted a little bit. And then later on, when my stepdad came into the picture, he was a screenwriter. So kind of had that film thing going on from a very, very, very young age, just being around the industry. Well, that's really neat. So you, you converted at age, uh, age 12, correct? Yes. All right. So how's your experience been since you've been a member? I, we'll get back to these questions here in a minute, but how's your experience been so far? Obviously positive. You're still in it. Well, it's been a journey for sure. And yes, I am. And still have a testimony today of the things I learned when I was and felt when I was when I was 12, I served a, a mission, the Canada Calgary mission in the 19, mid 1980s. And um, were you there during the Olympics? I was 1988. Yes. Calgary. How was that experience as a missionary? Did you get to go see any events or anything like that? Yeah, it's funny. That was, that was my mission. And yes, we did. There were certain rules we had to abide by, you know, to, um, to be able to go to an event. Uh, the mission president said, you know, if you're, if you have someone who's not a member, someone you're fellowshipping, someone you're working with, and they want to take you to an event, you can go. But missionaries cannot go on their own. And there were a few that did, and they got in trouble. But uh, but oh, yes, wow. I was right there, Canada Calgary, 1988, for all of that. And it was it was a pretty interesting thing because we used it as a tool, um, you, you know, to get out and, and and meet people, and then also used it within within ourselves. We created. You know how missionaries are You're always looking for motivate ways to motivate we use the olympics to motivate each other you know with gold and silver and bronze medals and all those kind of things that you do when you when you're 19 and while well, i was 24 when i went i should tell you that too i i was called pops in the mission field <laughs> because i was uh not like you know in god's i guess it was a little like god's army um but uh i was the oldest missionary in in, in the field because I'd already started my career when I decided to, uh, to leave and go. What Olympic event did you go see or events? Well, interestingly enough, we saw a bronze medal hockey game featuring uh, the United States. And then we were a lot of times in the plaza where they were trading pins and uh, things like that. Uh, ski, ski, uh, ski jumping. Uh, that was uh, Eddie, the Eagle Edwards was, like a big, big name at that, at that Olympics. He, you know, barely qualified for the Olympics. He was a crazy guy, but everybody knew who he was. So I, I remember that. And, you know, just a lot of, uh, oh, ice skate, uh, the, some of the figure skating. Oh, neat. Now, uh, well, so it sounds like your childhood was uh, quite interesting. Michelle, uh, maybe you can't compete with Marshall with your childhood. No, you just watch. I certainly cannot. He's, he <laughs> has um, a wealth of fun stories and life experiences that really, you know, has crafted the amazing man that he is. Um, I come from a family. I'm the oldest of five. And my, my, uh, my mom was a member. My dad is a convert. And I do have a very thin memory of my brother and I being sealed to my parents in the Salt Lake Temple. And I was probably four or five ish, if I remember, um, maybe even a little bit younger, but you know, um, the gospel has always been a super important part to, to my family growing up. And I've had three brothers that served missions. 
Um, my, my parents have just been amazing examples of Christ-like love. And I, I feel like their, their role in my life has really crafted my perspective and, and the way that I like to, to treat people and the way that I want to be treated myself. And it's a very, you know, accepting, non-judgmental, you know, like I'd mentioned, just Christ-like love for, for one another. That's really mean about being a convert. Well, um, especially you, Marshall, being a convert, you probably have a different perspective than someone like me, Michelle. You might have a different perspective. Uh, being well, a I will. Convert. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you because you know, if I have some friends from high school or college that listens to this podcast, they they may say, "Wait a minute," um, because we all go through our own conversion, right? Like, there's things yes. that we that we have to experience to where we know and honor that relationship with our Savior. And I have gone through a refiner's fire um, multiple times. I, I will admit that I didn't learn first time. You know, if you told me the stove was hot, I had to touch the stove to see if it was hot. More than once. Yeah, more than once. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, through, through the beautiful atonement and through the beautiful, you know, um, friendships and love and um, I just... Uh, there's no denying, I guess, of, of my testimony of the, the gospel. There's, I have a strong, strong testimony of family and the importance of family and treating people with love and respect. Yeah. So how did you two get introduced to Kils and Stephanie Goodman, the former owners of the film festival? We're going to get deeper into the subject as the podcast goes on, by the way. Well, I'll start. And then Michelle can finish because I Fair think our, path, our paths are, are similar, but a little different. So I, I was the director of the Utah Film Commission from 2007 to 2014. And uh, Christian Vuisa was the founder of the LDS Film Festival. And shortly into my tenure as director of the Film Commission, I realized that we had not done any kind of sponsorship in the past, even though it was a fairly new festival in 2007, uh, I felt like we should be involved and we should sponsor just like we do the Sundance Film Festival, just in a, in a, in a different way. So I got to know Christian. We went in, you know, created a cash sponsorship so they could have some flexibility with, um, you know, marketing materials and uh, bringing in people if they wanted to for travel. So that's how it started. And then in the course of that, I, I, I met Kells and I realized that Kells was the, really the heart and soul of the behind the scenes of how everything got put together. Um, programming, um, getting the, you know, getting the films to the festival, finding the films, making sure you had the right films. Um, he basically ran the festival behind the scenes and didn't get credit for it. Ultimately that would change, but that's when I first met Kells when I saw him just, you know, grinding to, to get through each festival and supporting, supporting Christian. And that, that was my first introduction to it. And right from the beginning, I love this festival. I mean, like people would ask me like, so in the beginning here, here, here's the, here was the, the problem. Uh, the scheduling of the LDS film festival, Christian always wanted it to be parallel to the Sundance Film Festival. 
my allegiances for to work for the state had to be I had to be at the Sundance Film Festival out front and center attracting those big productions to Utah you know that was that was my job to put our best foot forward as a state because a lot was riding on those 10 days but at the same time Christian was running the LDS Film Festival so I would run down off out of Park City drive down into uh Orem to the Sierra and get to as many films and events and speaking responsibilities I could and then eventually that's where Michelle came in where I invited her to her very first festival when I was still director of the film commission in 2011 or or so 2011 2012 somewhere right in there and then I think Michelle could kind of take it okay well, and I, I think that you know Kevin what's interesting to me is that I didn't grow up in film my dad is um a retired um state employee but he worked in the Utah um, parks and rec and so I grew up um, with my five siblings, you know, we were that typical Utah family. We vacationed to like all the different state parks and, and going to a movie was, was a treat. And we very rarely went to like opening weekend movies. Like we would go to um, the dollar theater, you know, when you have five kids and a mom and dad and everyone wants popcorn and treats, you know, it, it just, we didn't have that luxury of going to films and, you know, seeing a lot um, in theaters. And so when Marshall invited um, invited me to the LDS Film Festival, it was the first time in 2011 or 2012, probably 2012. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. yeah, so the first one I attended was in, um, I guess, early 2012. Mm-hmm. And I honestly was blown away. There was, there was, I remember asking Marshall, I said, is this like a real movie? It's like, you know, when you say LDS Film Festival, again, I had no concept yeah. he's been doing he's been doing Sundance, you know, for years. He's also been on Touched by an Angel, The Stand. I mean, he has a huge filmography of experience. And, and I, I innocently asked the question, is it, are they real films? And I, I was blown away at the, the quality of storytelling, the, um, you know, just the, the network of people that were there and, and, and the production, I guess, value on some of the films Christian's movie Letter Writer was the first one that I remember yeah. seeing at that festival. Yeah, we love that. And then I remember seeing a Rob Diamond film, I think Prodigal Son, was that maybe? We did see that, yeah. I yep. think those are the two that stick out in my mind in 2012, but we have a, we have a, a, just a deep felt love for the festival. But yeah, the festival and the filmmakers themselves and uh, the stories and the way those, the films make you feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally different than some others you you get at other festivals. There's a uniqueness to the LDS Film Festival, even though it's not all LDS films or LDS filmmakers. It's the spirit that comes along with the particular films that are are being shown there. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know that you uh, folks and Kels Goodman were in negotiation for a good two years before you finally took over the festival. What was the straw that broke the camel's back and you thought, I think I can take over this festival? Well, I have to, I'm going to pipe in first because I think our stories are the same, but, you know, there might be a little bit of difference between Marsha and I. Um, We, it's been something I've always wanted to be a part of, you know, like I said, I talked about my very first experience at the festival. Then we became regulars. Marshall, as he mentioned, also was a sponsor of the festival when they were, when he was at Utah film commission. And then now as um, 
VP of Marketing and Operations at Utah Film Festival. So he has Utah Film Studios. Film Studios. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I feel like you know what was really important to me is that that we could take our skill set, our knowledge, and and just help bridge that gap between what it where it had grown, like taking it to that next level. And I've worked with Kells for three or four years now and doing the PR for him. Um, and he has become dear friends of ours. In fact, we were just there this last weekend with him and Stephanie and one of our other friends. But I knew, and I had a strong feeling that this was something that we were to be a, a part of. And as you, as you indicated, it took two years. Like I remember you know, going to Marshall one year because Kels had mentioned that he, he may want to make a change and, you know, he just really wasn't ready. And I think Marshall's a very great indicator. He can, he can discern really well what people need and want. And, and there was a part that Kells wasn't really ready to turn it over. And so until he was ready to turn it over, I was a hundred percent behind him, supporting him and, you know, helping build the festival, getting media for the festival and we met at the end of last year, and well, yeah, those two those two years were like I thought we were pu- trying to like me personally because I'm our, we're separated by age by over ten years, um, but not much. <laughs> you and Michelle, or you and Kels Goodman? No, Michelle. Yeah, Marshall. Oh, okay. There's so, 10 years from Marshall and I, but don't let him kid you. He keeps up with me on a regular no, basis. But, but the so I have is, to ask, uh, who's older, Kel, uh, Marshall or Michelle? Who's the, who's older? Uh, well, that, and that's part of the story. I am Marshall. Um, uh, okay, that's part of the story. Just as so a I'm side right. note, I always seem to have better luck with older women. I'm 40 years old, but it seems like older women come after me. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, yeah, I am. I am the older one in this story. And, um, older and wiser. And, uh, so what was happening was I'm looking at myself, like I'm trying to separate. I spent 10 years working the state film commission, seven as a director. I like where I'm at now working at Utah film studios. I don't want to add anything more into what I'm already doing because I'm trying to separate from being in the grind all the time. So, but yes, she's right. I sensed that Kells wasn't quite ready, even though he said he was, but he always came to us after a burnout moment. Like, oh my gosh, it was crazy. All this went wrong and this was horrible. And uh, of course, nobody ever see that. It was all behind the scenes stuff that he dealt with internally. So I sensed that. And I'm like, he's not ready to give this festival up yet. So second year went by, same thing. I'm like, nope, not ready. And I wasn't ready personally either to take it on, but this year was different. So this year- he came to us before the festival and said, you know, do you want, do you want, do you want it? Do you want the festival? Cause I'm ready to give it up. I got, I want to go make movies. I'm a filmmaker. I'm ready to do something different because he came to us before. And it wasn't in a moment of panic or, you know, where he was stressed or tired. Uh, I felt like he was ready at that point. And then my personal opinion was maybe there, maybe there is time to do, one more great thing, you know, before you do, before you, before he's on the golf course, before you do something. Yeah. That's not as involved as this, as this will be. So I thought we could apply some of our skills, some of our backgrounds, some of our knowledge, connections, things we've been doing our whole lives 
to take this festival and bring in maybe some other players that have never been involved before because Kel's got to a certain point where it was like, I like it. I like the way it is and it's going well and everybody likes the way it is. But then we look at it as like, oh man, you have such a great foundation here. I think we can build on it just a little bit, open up some new doors and uh, build some new relationships and partnerships and take it from there. So that became the challenge and the excitement for me. Okay. Yeah. So what things do you plan to do differently next year at the film festival or that hasn't been done before? Well, you know, Kevin, we've been asked that question on a regular basis since we made the announcement, you know, at the award show of the festival. And I'd like to just kind of start by saying that we certainly are not planning on coming in and, you know, think of the festival as a snow globe and we're not going to shake it and break all the figurines inside. Um, because as Marshall just mentioned, there's a lot of great things that Kells has um, implemented since, you know, since him and Stephanie took over that we're just going to continue and that we're going to highlight. Now, some of the initial changes that you're going to see, you probably won't even see. Like some of those will be behind the scenes um, organization. Some of it's going to be IT, you know, the one skill set Marshall and I don't have is we are not filmmakers. So we come in it from a marketing and relationship standpoint. So we will be looking to find that person that can help us with programming and, you know, with handling all of the audiovisual needs. Kells wore so many hats, so many hats. And he was all over the place. <laughs> and, and he did a great job. And he's he, he has told us that he will continue to be a support to us as we move forward. And one of the things I felt like, I always felt like it was like home. It felt comfortable uh, being in the environment of the, of the festival. I think Kels set the tone, Kels and Stephanie set the tone for making you feel comfortable mm -hmm. like you were in their living room at, at, at the festival. We, we plan to definitely keep that up. And we, we know, it's not like we're coming in cold and don't know anybody affiliated we know the same group of people, but, but I think what we're trying to do here now is one of the things you will see different. We, oh, of course, we're going to have a new, new board of directors uh, advisory board uh, that we're going to work on over the next few weeks and then have our, our first meeting. But one of the things we really want to do is bring in some, some sponsors that will elevate um, some of the things we're able to do in terms of marketing, getting filmmakers here, having keynote speakers, um, just to enlarge the circle of who we have at, at the festival and what kind of films are there and where they come from. Okay. You, one of the concerns that I have, and I do want to talk about Stephanie and Kels, but one of the concerns I have, I don't want this film festival. And this is not a bash against you. I, I just worry if anybody took it over, I don't want this film festival to be, Oh, we can't show this film because it's not politically correct. Oh, we can't show this film because there's enough there's not enough diversity or something like that. Um, what, what's your concern? No, the, yeah, I, I, well, okay. So I just don't want it to be like, uh, oh, well, we got to be politically correct here. We got to have a uh, more diversity because in this film, there's not much skin color. I, I don't want it to turn in. Like okay. That. Now, now I know where you're going with that. Okay. I think you have to judge all of this on the merit 
of the film and the story itself. Mm-hmm. Because if you, it, it, this is what it reminds me of. And this is going to be maybe a weak example of, of what you're trying to say. But I remember I was a basketball coach for a little while. Oh. And, and I remember not, not on any grand, not NBA level, not anything. grand scale, but I coached <laughs> like competitive basketball back 15, 20 years ago. So, but what I, what I, there was a time when we tried to force something to happen. Like, oh, this guy isn't getting the ball enough. So we need to get him the ball, you guys, so he can shoot because he hasn't taken a shot the whole game. That never works, right? You can't force something that's not supposed to happen in the flow of how you set it up in the flow of the game. And the same thing is with the festival, you can't force certain things to happen. You got to let them happen. If it's right, you'll know it. You know, if it, if it fits in what the general mission of the, the festival is, so nothing will be forced. It will be evaluated and, and see if it fits in the, in the mission. And we're not going to try to like hit a criteria, you know, or a quota, not criteria, sorry, a quota. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not a matter of us, you know, hitting that, quota for any sort of content or, um, you know, storytelling, it's, it's really based on the quality of the film, the production value, the storytelling, the acting, you know, all of those things that, that you would want, you know, that any film festival is looking at is when they get submissions. And it doesn't matter where it comes from either, as long as it fits in the, the model and the spirit of, uh, what the festival is all about and and the mission of that festival is not being we're not changing the mission of what the festival is about okay but uh, but obviously the things you mentioned are important i mean yeah diversity um but nothing's gonna be forced you know it's it's you have to evaluate each film on its own merit and each story storytelling premise um no matter what it is like who would have thought that my favorite all-time movie from the LDS Film Festival is Once I Was a Beehive. I mean, <laughs> I would have never, I didn't even want to go the morning they said, hey, come watch this thing. I was like, what? <laughs> and then I ended up loving it. Um, and I know it fits the model of the festival, but what I'm saying is you never know what story is going to touch you. No, you don't. Uh, in fact, this uh, a little bit of a deviation here. Then I want to get into something about Stephanie and Kels, and we'll continue. I went to a film called, uh, well, I don't know if you folks know this. Are you familiar with the radio show that used to be on KMGR? Back then it was 95.9 down there in Manti called Life Under the Horseshoe. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. I'm not. Life Under the Horseshoe was kind of a Utah version of Prairie Home Companion. Oh, okay. I do know that. Yes. Yeah. And it was funny. They had, in fact, I tried to interview the people on Life Under the Horseshoe on my podcast. There were just too many technical difficulties. We couldn't do it. But um, I really felt God's spirit in that whole. Uh, I, that whole radio theater show. It was a, it was recorded in front of a live audience. It was fun. Uh, even me. Well, of course it was meant for radio. So obviously me as a blind person could follow it, but there was really a spiritual aspect of the show. And I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you want to keep that spirit going at the LDS film festival. 
Yeah, I don't think there's a real a, agenda for anything particular except good good storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and, and then maybe somebody can have a spiritual experience, or depending on the individual. And, yeah, and those stories come from everywhere, from every corner of the earth, and yeah. from every type of filmmaker. And uh, you know, you, you just don't know where those stories are going to come from till you till you open it up, and then it's up to us as festival directors to say these are the ones, and that's the hardest part, I believe. I mean, having been around the Sundance programmers a little bit, you know, they get ten thousand submissions. How do, how do you pick one hundred and eighty or whatever? You know, at, at the end of the day, um, there's got to be a lot of rejections, and there's got to be something that says this is. These are the films we want to show. It's the same thing with us. And this will be new for us. I'm not saying this is anything we're, we're used to. Matter of fact, I saw Kells on Saturday and I said, we need some, we need some, a day of tutelage with you or more than that, but we need to be walked through how, how the technical aspects of acquiring films uh, work. And, and he's going to work with us on that through the year. Yeah, let me just say something about Stephanie and Kels really quick. I went to the film festival in 2019 last year before COVID hit. Yeah. And I, I just come out of the movie. It was the movie. I can't remember the name of it. It was about how the Constitution was formed. It was, the I believe, the second to the last film being shown on Saturday. And I got out of the movie I didn't have any plans to go anywhere. I didn't have anything planned. So I was just going to hang around. Somebody came, one of the filmmakers or somebody, I could tell that they were part of the film festival came and said, do you want a sandwich? And I said, sure. <laughs> and then uh, Stephanie saw me eating my sandwich or she, I think she cornered me after and said, uh, why don't you come into the VIP section? I thought, okay, I didn't, I don't have a pass. I don't have a, film festival pass. I only came to see one movie. I'm not sure how I'm going to be treated in this VIP section, but I went in there anyway. And I'm glad I did because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to interview you. I wouldn't have been able to interview <laughs> Stephanie or April Frampton and some of these other, you know, those people. So the, that was really nice of Kels and Stephanie to do because they didn't know me at all. Well, you know, that's what I was saying about the kind of the, the way they make you feel at home. Yeah, um, they, they like, do. Like you're in their, in their home, in their living room. And, and you know, that's just the quality that they possess. You know, uh, we were in their home on Saturday and they invited us over to watch a movie with them. And it, it was just like that at the festival. It was the same, same kind of feeling. And you just get that because from them because they're relationship people. And, and most film people are relationship people. It's built, the industry is built on collaboration and, and relationships and, and no two people really do it better, did it better than, than Kells and Stephanie with this festival. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it was very nice of them. Now I have to ask you, because if I don't ask you this as a blind person, I am going to get ridiculed. But, and I realized that this may be out of your jurisdiction, but are you going to encourage people when they submit a film? And I don't know if you can even do this at the film festival. When somebody goes and watch this, watches this, are you going to have, if the film is, has a descriptive video track, are you going to play that track 
at the film festival. And I have to ask you this because uh, politically I have to, or I'm going to get ridiculed by a whole bunch of blind people. Well, we love the, this question. Um, and it's something, as you know, like a lot of the times it's out of our control. It might even be out of the, the technology capabilities, you know, of a particular theater. Yeah. But I also realize film producing is expensive and these indie films right. don't always have that capability. Carry on. Yeah. But it is, um, front and center in our minds. And in fact, before, you know, we were, before you even outreached to us to do an interview, Marshall had mentioned to me um, about wanting to make this accessible, um, you know, to- The hearing impaired. Yeah. Cause we have a hearing oh, impaired okay. daughter. Well, we have a hearing impaired daughter and she always asked me, dad, does it have closed caption? When I say you want to watch a movie, she got a lot, half the time, the LDS movies that are on DVD do not have a closed caption feature. For her to for her to watch and and so one of the first things I whispered to Michelle when we were actually sitting in the theater before we even accepted the, you know when they brought us up on stage to talk about this I said what are we going to do about a closed caption I hadn't the question you posed hadn't even crossed my mind yet I know it's on features on um, on DVD and on Netflix and and uh, you know and, and it's something that we have to definitely uh, get into and figure out the logistics of it and would appreciate your help. Uh, sure. figuring that out as well. Uh, you know, I think your input would be, would be very valuable for us. But certainly I can actually get you in touch with some other people. Um, if you stay on with me after the podcast, we can get into this a little bit deeper if you'd like. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what we would love to, to find out is obviously a lot of the submissions are, you know, take place on film freeway. And mm -hmm. if there's just a, you know, something that you're able to, click, you know, that a filmmaker is able to upload a um, file a certain way with those extra features, then absolutely as, you know, as we look at the programming and as we start putting that out, we want to, to be able to service as many, you know, people as possible and have that feature available if, if logistically it can work. And this is part of the transition of becoming festival directors. Uh, you have to learn new things and understand situations that you may have not worked directly with before. And so this question is really humbling and it is a way to, to, to learn, um, you know, like we talk about expanding our, our, our minds and our thoughts and all those kind of things. And this is one of the ways we'll, we'll certainly have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly enough, I interviewed uh, Stacy and Warren Fass who do Saving Grace and there was no descriptive video. I know it wasn't their fault. They didn't know about it. It's an indie film. This isn't Hollywood, but they did tell me that um, I guess when they sell it up in Canada, there was a person who was putting a descriptive video track on there. And I don't know if that's only available in Canada, but I thought that was interesting. And yeah, I can definitely work with you as much as I can on that. Sure. Thank you. I actually worked with Stephanie or um, Stacy and Warren um, on Friday. Great Grace. people, by the way amazing people and the Warren is a fantastic screenwriter and storyteller like um and you know and again for me to be able to work with Jason Wade that was our eighth film that he and I had worked on together and he's just an amazing actor that pulls so much emotion in whatever story he's portraying whatever character he's representing on screen oh yeah um 
You know, one of the things that I like uh, now, I've only seen two movies at the LDS Film Festival. One was a document. Both of them were documentaries, but they were both easy to follow. Even uh, Saving Grace was pretty easy to follow because it was most mostly talking. A lot of films today. Oh, let's see how many how much sound effects we can get into this. Uh, let's see how theatrical we can get. I I didn't notice. Now I don't know if this is the case with all the films at the LDS Film Festival. But that's one of the things that has attracted me to it. And before I get to the next question, I will say this. When I went to the award show back in 2019, uh, Stephanie invited me to the award show. I did not want to show up. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was just going to be some boring award show that was going to last three or four hours. I didn't want to go. I'm glad I went. I enjoyed it thoroughly. You, um, you were entertained? Absolutely. And, and it wasn't, oh, let's, let's see how, just how much we can entertain Kevin or the audience. It was, it was an hour. It started and ended at the exact right time in my mind. Well, yeah, that's I, the way we like it. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about LDS cinema, kind of overlapping with the podcast that I did with uh, Stephanie and Kels, but obviously you're new directors. Maybe you have a different perspective. We all think, and rightfully so, that God's Army was the beginning of LDS Film Festival, but do you think maybe, or not the, the LDS Cinema, not the Film Festival, but LDS Cinema, but do you think maybe this uh, LDS Cinema started before that with films like The Mailbox, Johnny Lingle, L Uncle Ben, and many others? Well, what do you think? Well, I'm glad you mentioned God's Army, because I think that was more of a shift in the dynamic of mm -hmm. how we think about LDS film, but it certainly for me was not the origin of, of LDS film and filmmaking and filmmakers that came with the films you referenced. Like we're growing up watching these in Sunday school class, even where they'd bring in a 16 millimeter film and we'd watch Johnny Lingo. And then later on it would be VHS, you know, mm -hmm. and the mailbox and uh, cipher in the snow. And uh, so the, these were all movies that I became accustomed to and appreciated. And here's the interesting thing for me is I wanted to know who made them. I wanted to know who was behind them. I wanted to know who the cinematographer was, who was directing these things, who was writing them, who was producing them. You know, I wanted to have all that knowledge. But of course, with those, they didn't have credits. Some of them did. Some of them didn't, you know. Uh, but uh, basically, it was just. They were being produced by the church. So for me, the origins of true LDS cinema came out of the LDS motion picture studio and uh, came out of those filmmakers that are coming out of BYU and other places like Reed Smoot as a, as a DP and TC Christensen and uh, these guys that um, were students or in their early 20s uh, showcasing what would come later as, as a brilliant long-running film careers but to me that's the origin of it and then what happened is uh with god's army and we can use that as a, as a certain turning point of course there were things in between but nothing as dramatic yeah. as what richard, what richard dutcher did there the theatrical release of course i referenced in my opening night uh, i mean our closing night remarks but our as when we took over the festival that I uh, went to the very first show, the very first matinee of God's oh, Army. Oh, that's right. I heard that. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, Jordan Commons. And um, 
I couldn't wait. I thought this was an exciting time for LDS film. I didn't know anything really much about Richard Dutcher at the time, but when I sat in that theater for the two hours or whatever it was, I was captivated. I loved it. I, you know, I'd gone on a mission not too far. I mean, it was still a decade since I came home or more, but everything rang true, you know, to that, especially the pops part, you know, because <laughs> I was, uh, but I, I thought this, this is, this is real movie making right here. We, this, the, the LDS filmmaker and film can cross, can cross over um, with films like this. Yeah, do you think, I know that uh, there's been some criticism in LDS cinema after God's mm -hmm. Army. Sure. Because we had movies like The Singles Ward, which, by the way, I was not a fan of. And I am. I, I really? like it, for what, yes, for what it is. I laugh at it. I think it covers all the good jokes. I understand why people do not like it. I do. But I also, for me, it was a, a safe refuge at times on a Sunday afternoon to put it in and have a good time. So that, that, that okay. for me is what it was. And the RM that followed and home teachers. Yeah. All the jokes got a little, you know, drug out, but I appreciated the effort of, of Dave Hunter and, and, and Kurt Hale and Hailstorm and what they were trying to do. Okay. Uh, well, fair enough. And so we went from God's army to singles ward to home teachers. And do you think, and then people, it seemed to me just lost interest in LDS cinema until probably the Cokeville Miracles came out and the Saratoga approach. Uh, oh, Sar Saratov, yeah. Saratov, um, yeah. And so do you well, think, think that rejuvenated the interest in LDS film, uh, LDS cinema? I think we, we glossed over one and, and didn't mention it. That was around the time of God's Army, and that's the other side of heaven. Um, oh, that's right. Written and directed by Mitch Davis. Michelle actually worked on The Other Side of Heaven, too, uh, recently. But, yeah, Anne Hathaway, Christopher Gorham. Um, you know, what a great story and great filmmaking. And the budget, you know, the budget on that was a little little bigger, a little more dynamic, uh, higher production value. I went to the theater and saw that as well and and welcomed it. But I thought that was right there, too, and, and especially Other Side of Heaven, too. But, yeah, then the ones you referenced kind of brought it all back with 17 Miracles, Ephraim's Rescue. Uh, Saratov approach for me is, is one of the stronger ones from Garrett Batty. Absolutely. I think that there's also a lot of others that happened during that time period. Um, you know, like I'm thinking like the Saints and Soldiers brand. I mean, that was released, mm -hmm. you know, kind of in that time period yeah, as well. Sure. And, you know, with, with a marketing background, I feel, Kevin, like one of the, the issues is that there just wasn't a lot of marketing of the films that could, you know, get out to people. It was interesting this year at the LDS Film Festival because we celebrated 20 years of cinema. And one of the things that I was kind of in charge of was creating a list of, you know, as many LDS films that we could think of that happened, you know, in that period of 20 years. And it was remarkable. And I can share the list with you later. You could, you know, share it with your audience as well. But there has been a lot of, you know, filmmaking that has taken place. You know, you even, you mentioned Cokeville Miracle, but even before that, you know, T.C. Christensen had 17 miracles. Um, I also worked on Ephraim's Rescue, you know, with T.C. So uh, Garrett Batty did Scout Camp. Is that another well, that was one? his first. Yeah, that, that was, was before Saratov, right? Yes. So I, 
I, I hear what you're saying, but I also believe that there was a lot of great content and messages and stories that were being told, you know, in that time frame that don't always get recognized as. Well, you did a poll. Did you do a, like a survey or somebody did it? We did. And what, what ended up on top of that survey as the most popular? Well, the most popular one was Other Side of Heaven. Yeah. And um, I don't remember what second and third were, but. That was in that 20 year period. Yeah, in the 20 year period. But it did, you know, Mitch Davis's Other Side of Heaven, uh, T.C. Christensen's 17 Miracles and Garrett Batty's Sarah Top Approach. Yeah, those were, were in, the, the, in the top. Yeah. Top four, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's another one in there, but yeah, you're right. And then every once in a while, there's one that really comes along and, and, and rises to the top and really sticks, sticks with people, you know, some come and go, but then there are the ones that are just like, Whoa, that has a profound impact. You know, uh, there's, there's always the one that, so there's, when you're making these films, it's not, unless it's all, candy coated and rainbows and happy one of my favorites is a controversial one so richard dutcher's states of grace um i thought oh i heard that was actually pretty good i've never seen it but yeah carry on well like i said it's, it's one of my favorites it got mixed reviews not from critics because i don't know anything about that but from people who saw it some people saying wow, this is the kind of stories we ought to be telling. And others saying, we don't need to tell this story. We don't want to know what struggles the missionaries go through. We just want to assume everything's fine while they're on their mission. Which is not true, as you know, but carry on. No, no. I, right in the heart and soul of that on my mission, saw things happen that I would have never thought would happen before I went on a mission. So to me, it all rang really true. And of course it was in Los Angeles. It took place in the Los Angeles mission where there's gangs and things happening around these missionaries all the time. So States of Grace, and that's where I became really friendly with Richard, how we got, you know, on a really good friendship level was I went to Los Angeles once and I texted him and I said, Hey, I want to go visit some of the filming locations for States of Grace. Where, where was this? Where was this? And he sent me to all these places and I followed up followed up with him and we kind of established our friendship based on based on that and that's when I was the director of the film commission and I just loved that and that's one of the diverse ones that people look at and go no we can't have states of grace because it, it, it tells some stories on missionaries that are we don't want our future missionaries to see <laughs> or taint them oh I can I tell you some good. stories uh, I, I can tell you later well, exactly. And that's why I appreciated States of Grace so much. Yeah. Um, real quick, before I go to the next question, do you think if it wasn't for movies like The Mailbox and others I'd mentioned that we all knew and loved, if you're probably past the age of 35, we may not have had the LDS Film Festival or LDS Cinema, or do you think it would have happened anyway? Okay, well, I'll take that one as well. Um, do I think it would have happened anyway? Because Yes, because I think there was a process going on, a nurturing of storytellers uh, coming out of the LDS Motion Picture Studios that was not going to be stopped. It was a tidal wave, if you would, if you would say, of, of storytellers that, that felt the need and had the skills and the sense to tell good stories. 
Mm -hmm. And I, I, I feel that from those humble origins of those short films that you would watch in Sunday school and nowhere else, really, um, maybe a missionary had them and would use them in a missionary format. But I think that these filmmakers realized that they, they could do this and they could cross over into to box office territory to put it on their stories on the, the big screen. So no, I, I felt like without those, yes. Uh, that, 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 I mean, with those, yes, that, that led to the, uh, ultimately the LDS Film Festival uh, being formed by, by Christian Buisa. What do you think of Lyman Dayton getting the Lifetime Achievement Award? I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, ditto. Yes, Film Festival, he got that award. For those of you that don't know. I, you know, and I love that we have that award at the film festival because it's something that you can do to highlight the accomplishments of some mavericks, you know, from early on um, that blazed the trail for so many other filmmakers to, you know, trust their skill set and their their desire in telling a story. And Lyman's great representation of that. I was so happy that he got it. I've, obviously, his name is, has been, uh, you know, I've, I'm familiar with it since my childhood. Uh, uh, not only where Redfern grows, but uh, Against a Crooked Sky was a movie that I saw in the theaters as well. And so from a very young age, I, I knew the name Lyman Dayton. I knew the name Stuart Peterson um, and, uh, and always wanted to find out more about them. But more importantly, it's like, how did they do it? And he is true, truly was a great representation of that early LDS I mean, he just happened to be a producer that was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These were not LDS films per se, but they had the values of an LDS film by, produced by uh, a Latter-day Saint. And, and that's what I think the great thing about Lyman is, is he, he just jumped in there and with, with the big boys and got it done on a, you know, with a small company. Yeah, do you think Lyman could do something like that today? And let alone, how do you think he would distribute his films? Because I understand he had a hard time distributing that movie. He had to actually go to the theaters individually and sell his movies to TV stations. How would he have done something like that today? Or could he even pull something like that off today? Well, I think I might jump in on this one just for a sec, because I work with a lot of different distributors, whether it's you know, a streaming platform, it's uh, theatrical releases or straight to DVDs or a combination of all three, you know, for different filmmakers. And the struggle is still very real, like to, to be able to, um, you know, compete on a national level for space in a theater, you have to have amazing um, content, you have to have a marketing strategy, you know, plan, PR plan, you know, behind it to help let the consumers know what's playing because at the end of the day the theaters are still a business and as much as they may personally be advocates for a particular film if it's not you know creating box office revenue for them as a business then they will move to the next you know the next thing now covid certainly played a great opportunity for many independent films because studios you know had spent millions of dollars in production and they weren't ready to just kind of release it and see what would happen where theaters capacity was, you know, at half or even some markets theaters are completely closed. And so it did open up a great door for the independent filmmaker to, you know, to release a film. But as far as, you know, what Lyman Dayton went through 
when he released his movies, there are many filmmakers that still go through that same, um, I guess, process of trying to get a distributor, trying to get a theatrical release. Um, of course, there's, you know, anybody can upload to Amazon Prime. But again, if you don't have a market and an audience behind it, it can just sit there like a, well, for, for example, I, <laughs> it was a number of years ago when I was a director of film commission. And I remember going, I'm not going to say who said it was, but I went to go visit a set and I, I was meeting with the producers and they said to me, Hey, Hey, come out here to the parking lot. I want to show you something. I'm like, Oh boy. <laughs> and uh, so I go over there and he opens up his trunk and there are 24 gold bricks in the trunk. He showed, this is how we're financing this movie. We're financing this, this, these, gold, these gold bricks right here. And I was like, okay, this is truly, truly independent <laughs> filmmaking. We, we, need, we need another production day. Well, here's a gold brick, we'll cash it in. You know, so uh, that kind of reminds me of uh, Lyman Dayton. And that was, that was probably 10, 10 years ago on that one. Oh, wow. So what do you think Lyman would have to do differently today, though? Because everything's changed. I, I didn't know that you as a filmmaker could automatically upload something on Amazon Prime. I thought you had to negotiate a deal. That's my ignorance of the film industry. But what would he have had to do differently today? Because most, I don't know if he could sell DVDs out of his car. And now with consolidation being as it is in the media, which I know something about as a broadcaster, I don't think you can just go into a TV station and sell your film anymore. I think that there, you know, what will ring true to filmmakers now and that ring true to Lyman is relationships. And again, you know, to kind of go full circle, I feel like that's one of the, the main assets that Marshall and I have in, in connecting people and in, you know, having those relationships to be able to have opportunities of releasing a film to different markets. You know, we're, I, I've worked with Matt Brown at Living Scriptures for a couple of years, you know, and they have 3000 plus options of different films that you can, that you can watch. I've worked with Brandon Purdy from Purdy Distribution, you know, for almost nine years now, maybe going on 10 years. And he is masterful at figuring out um, how to get the film into the theaters and how to expand into different markets. I've worked with Excel Entertainment and Covenant Books, you know, um, some of these, and then independent filmmakers. I, one of my favorite movies from 2020 was Rob Diamond's movie, um, Lucy Shimmers and the Prince of Peace. Like I ugly cried watching that film because it just ripped your heart out in a good way. Like in a, in a, the movie st stayed with you for days afterwards. So, and he, you know, Rob does his own um, distribution channels. I think he was through Bridgestone Media, but it's, it's all about the relationship and it's about what is best for your film and, and having a plan in place for that to execute. Well, I mean, she mentioned Brandon Purdy and let's just talk about current right now. Lamb of God. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the, talk about COVID pivot. I mean, that thing was a touring stage play and everybody or oratorio, and it would just be performed by certain groups. And, and of course, Rob Gardner would take it on tour. Couldn't do it this year. So the Brandon Purdy said, why don't we make a film out of it? Like we did the Forgotten Carols, which was a stage show. Yeah. And of course it's uh, one of the top 
films in the uh, in the box office this week. Yeah, we just opened on um, on Friday, and it was a great partnership between Purdy Distribution and Excel Entertainment and Rob Gardner. But it opened on Friday, and it was in the top ten grossing movies in the in all of the United States. And so it's the number one film, uh, faith film that's out there. And then just on Monday, we're at number six. So you know, again, it's, that was, and that was Brandon saying, we should do this. We should do it now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the time was right, obviously. Yeah. So, uh, Michelle, why don't you talk a little bit about the heart of Africa and what you had to do to market that because it was going to hit the theater. And I believe what that week or the week after COVID. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. That's an interesting story. Oh, and that film is just tugs at your heart. I mean, you talked about, you know, earlier in our, in in this interview about films reaching, you know, every corner of the earth and what a beautiful story of a, you know, Congolese filmmaker, Chopin Kambambi and the young, so uh, Margaret and Bruce Young and their mission to help revitalize cinema in the Congo. But we had a beautiful you know, on paper, everything looked great, Kevin, like we're leading up to, you know, the release date, we've got some great media that's happened, some wonderful storytelling, kind of behind the scenes, we have a sold out theatrical release on a Wednesday, and then we are hitting um, opening weekend would be that Friday, and it was March 12th. And so we just barely had the one year kind of quote anniversary of, of when all things, you know, that were, were, were not anymore. But I remember setting up for the, the premiere. We got everyone in the theater. We did the welcome. And me and my assistants that were, you know, helping run that premiere, we were out in the lobby setting up for a big, um, like, poster signing, you know, meet and greet afterwards. And that's when all the news started hitting our phones about the jazz player. They were playing. Rudy, Rudy Gobert. Yeah, Rudy, Rudy Gobert. And they were playing Oklahoma, Oklahoma yep. Thunder, right? That's right. That's right. <clears throat> and he had just tested positive. So, of course, none of us knew what was going to happen. We had no idea what the fallout was going to be. Um, I was there with the events coordinator with Megaplex. We were, we were both just like, what does this mean to, to theaters? And so... We, we quickly as a team pivoted. And again, this is the importance of having a distributor. So Brandon Purdy was the distributor on this film. And, um, and he worked very quickly at um, finding avenues and ways that we could distribute this once theaters closed down. Because we knew that there was gonna come a time when theaters and even just the consumer was like worried, you know, because you have to, you have to play to that, to that card also knowing that people were very worried. They were very concerned. They had no idea about their health, their safety, about going out, you know, wearing masks, social distancing. All this was new to so many of us as we were watching what was happening outside of America. And now as it was, you know, as, as we started seeing numbers increase and grow. A couple of very key things we did. One of them is we, um, and I say we, and I mean this as a full team, but our, the team for Heart of Africa was able to create a partnership with Living Scriptures and they quickly, they quickly put up a, plat- a platform on their streaming service that was called a TVOD, which stands for Transactional Video On Demand. So now consumers were able to safely 
purchase this video because DVDs weren't ready and we didn't want to give away, you know, all of a revenue stream by just making it free on a streaming platform. And so Living Scriptures was great at, you know, making that available for people to be able to watch in their homes and the safety of their, you know, home cinema became a new terminology that we used a lot of last year. We um, also reached out to a lot of different filmmakers. And I remember one of them in particular was my dear friend, Michael McLean with Forgotten Carols. And we talked to Michael and his team. By the way, he's funny, but go ahead. Oh, he's a, he is a blast. Like if there was ever. I've heard him on the cultural hall. He loves to talk about making out with his wife. I laugh all the time. (laughs) I haven't heard that one. Oh, he's great. I love Richie. Richie at the cultural hall is fantastic as well. Um, (laughs) But you know, what they did is they opened up, they understood the, the need of, so they opened up basically their, you know, their services and trying to let their, their audiences and their, you know, their database of people know about this amazing film and this amazing mission. And I don't know if you've had a chance to watch Heart of Africa, but it is a oh, beautiful story um, told completely in the eyes of a Congolese um, main character, a filmmaker, the, the American missionaries played by Brandon Ray Olive, who is again, another just great guy that has so many acting abilities that I'm just kind of speechless when I watch him perform. But that was a lot what we had to do with Heart of Africa is we had to completely reinvent what our rollout plan was going to be. Usually when you have a theatrical release, you know, you're in, you're in Utah, some Idaho store, uh, theaters, you roll out to Arizona, you roll out to other markets that have requested the film. And there's a whole strategy kind of behind that. And we had to, we had to can that and we had to quickly come up with a scenario that would work for the filmmakers and for the audience that really wanted to see the film. And the end goal of that particular film was to, like I mentioned, revitalize cinema in the Congo. And it, and it did like they've had their own film festival there. They've won other additional awards. They um, made part two. Yeah. They've made part two that was released at the film festival Elias Film Festival just last month. Companions, I think. So yeah, right. companions. So um, now, can you watch it? Um, I don't want to say for free, but can you watch it on Living Scriptures without paying for that extra thing? Or is it still? I, I'm, you know, I'm actually not positive. I would think that it is available there through their... Like if you buy a subscription yeah, to Living Scriptures. Yeah, like if you have a subscription, be, it's on there. I believe that's the case, yes. Um, okay. And there's also a DVD. Because I think it's part it. of their library. Right. Okay. Now, but if uh, you're not... I will do just a quick little plug, because there is a lot of amazing films on Living Scriptures. Ones I had never even heard of before, but all have some great stories, so... Oh, they're doing some great work over there. They are. Getting some good content out. Oh, at Living Scriptures? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, now I was going to ask you that. Are they, do they have their own studios? Because it seems like I get emails from them. They've been, there's movies on there that I've never heard of. Are there people uploading content all the time? Yeah, I mean, they do acquire a lot of content, but I I believe they were just approved for a a motion picture incentive program uh, rebate on a a project they're going to start now, an animation uh, project yeah it's, it's their come follow me videos that they release once a week 
um, in alignment to what the, you know, what, what scriptures yeah, so or they, they, lessons. They do do that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, I have to ask you, Michelle, and you can weigh on this too, Marshall, if you want. We are in a day and age of censorship. It is worrying me to death because I'm a podcaster. I'm not worried about being deplatformed yet because I'm not as popular as some of these other podcasters, but it could happen. Um, you mentioned, Michelle, in a video that I saw, you really stressed marketing yourself on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and rightfully so, because believe it or not, most of the people go there, but what happens if you get the platform? We're in, I have to bring this up because we're in a day and age. If Facebook doesn't like you, if you say something about President Trump that they don't like, you're gone. If you say something about Black Lives Matter, you're gone. What do you do if you're deplatformed? How are you going to market yourself or your film? Well, I think that a couple of things I want to address with that question. And thank you for asking it because it, it you can never put all of your eggs in one basket. And no. just as I have mentioned on many different interviews that I've been on, social media is a key component to any type of marketing that you're going to do for a product, for a film release, you know, book launch, events, whatever that is, social media is incredibly important, but that's not your only platform or your only avenue. Um, as far as censoring ship, you have to know your end audience as well. So I'm, if I'm releasing a, an LDS film or if I'm releasing a faith-based film, I am not going to allow my personal opinions, my personal political opinions to potentially mutter, muddy any messages that I have centered around a specific um, marketing strategy that I have in place. And I think that, you know, like what you're talking about with some of the censorship we have, we have dear friends that have, you know, they, they drew a line in the sand when it comes to black, black lives matter, or they drew a line in the sand when it comes to politics and on a personal basis, Kevin, I, I get that. I respect their opinions and I respect their, their positions. Um, from a marketing standpoint and from a film-based standpoint, I would just say it's super important to know your audience that you're, that you're targeting, the message that you want to get across to somebody and do it in a way that, that will be heard. You're not doing anything you know, to, to further a mission if you're trying to infuse your own political opinions on something. So what I'm hearing is diversify your portfolio. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just all social media. So you have a website. Right. You have email. You, you do. Email. And you have what, you know, we call it earned media, but those are like, you know, like podcasts, TV, it's TV interviews, Podcast, it's radio. Yes. Um, <laughs> your show. <laughs> and, and we use a lot of those assets that we create through a media standpoint or traditional media standpoint. And we use those as um, tools through our social media, through our, um, you know, email database campaigns, you know, all these different things that um, just help further the mission and the strategy of any campaign that, that I am able to be on. Well, one thing that I, yeah, I do want to ex, uh, expand on this because I personally know a person, I'm not going to mention his name on this podcast, right, that we're doing now, maybe on another episode, but not on this episode. He and his group have been deplatformed. And so what they've done, and I think that they realized this early on, 
they actually communicate with their members through text alerts. So what you're telling me is know your audience and then maybe you might want to set up something like text alerts or emails or something like that, correct? Absolutely. Text alerts are one of the biggest driving as far, like there is data behind people looking at their text alert much more than even, you know, opening an email. I, myself, as as a consumer, I get your one text messages, you know, or I get Cole's text messages, whatever it is that I was shopping at. And I'm like, oh, great. There's 20% off if I go in their store today. So absolutely, Kevin, that's a great um, point to bring up to people is, again, know your audience, right? If you're working with a lot of, um, you know, an older generation, spending a lot of money targeting an older generation on Twitter or Instagram is not wise money spent. Yeah. Radio and billboards work. Yeah. And, <laughs> and email, you know, bless, bless their hearts. My, my parents, and letters. <laughs> my parents fall in that category, but yeah. yeah it's, A phone call. It, it's yeah, so, so many different avenues that you can promote and educate and, um, yeah, just get get information out to to people through different channels, and you want and your lists. You have like a lot of lists. Oh yeah, we have you know different even kinds of lists from um, from working on films. I mean, I have a large database of of consumers that have come to different premieres or word of mouth screenings or have reached out to me personally about films, and you don't want to inundate them. Obviously, you don't want to spam them. But again, know your audience but provide content that people want to hear. Yeah. So if I'm making a movie about certain people in the Patriot movement, and I know that there's a lot of people out there, half of the population may not like it just because of who is involved or who I'm making a movie of and the side that I'm taking. Yeah. Maybe I'll use social media to market it, but knowing I'll get kicked off. I've got these text alerts. I've got the website and maybe some of these other alternative social media networks out there that may not be so mainstream. Yeah, And I may, I may also encourage if I was your publicist on that film, I would encourage the content to not be so controversial. Find it just because you don't want to be deplatformed. It's not that you want to, be misleading and do like a bait and switch. But again, know what things are, know, know where, where you stand. And if your goal is to get deplatformed, that, that doesn't help your film if you're going to be releasing it, you know, with this type of content. So I would say be smart in the strategy of it. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you folks this, and I am going to do a podcast on this, whether it's solo or someone else. What do you think of the new documentary on Netflix about Mark Hoffman, maybe from your opinions about it, uh, from a film standpoint? What's your opinion about it? I assume you've seen it. I watched it on back-to-back nights. I watched all three episodes on two different nights. I read Salamander in the 1990s. I I have to. Yeah, I, I, uh, so my, I, I loved it. Um, my, my opinion, I, I, I mean, look, this, the story is what it is, but I thought Jared Hess yeah. and Tyler did a, did a great job of telling that story. There were some things that were surprising that got left out to me. Uh, but uh, overall, it was great to see that old footage of Salt Lake in uh, 1980s 
Um, it, it was uh, it was it was told in a way that I think anybody could understand from point A to, to the end of the story what the progression of you know what Mark Hoffman w- was trying to do and why he felt he had to resort to unfortunately killing people to cover up his uh, his his deception because he was being he was being found out he was being uncovered and and he probably was narcissistic and and couldn't handle that very very well but my 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 overall opinion is that I was surprised it took this long to tell this story on film and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a scripted dramatic at some point about this same story. They've talked about it for years. I know there's like multiple books and there's been screenplays written about this. And I look, just a little side note, if I might share. Yeah, go ahead. I uh, came almost face to face with Mark Hoffman in the Utah State Prison. Not that Oh my I gosh, uh, expand, <laughs> I wanna know more. So I was the location manager on a movie miniseries called The Stand. And it was the movie that actually brought me uh, to Utah, I worked here um, almost nine months uh, from start to finish on that movie. And and one of the filming locations uh, was ultimately the Utah State Prison. On our very first uh, technical scout where we brought the director and the producer uh, through to, to find which cells we were actually gonna film in, our tour guide casually pointed over uh, to the kitchen area where we were walking through and they said, uh, that's Mark Hoffman over there in that white jumpsuit. And um, so he, he looked at us, we looked, we looked back at him, and this is probably 1993, so not too far removed uh, from that, but I, that I, you know, you don't forget something like that when you come 20 feet away. From what was he doing in the kitchen? Because I thought he was in solitary confinement or has been. Not at that point. He was not at that point. He was working. Oh, really? He was working, he was working kitchen duty at that point. I don't know exactly what he was doing. Couldn't tell if he was cooking or doing dishes. I had no idea. But uh, he was off not too far from us. So I don't know. Let me ask you, because I've ran into people that have worked with Mark Hoffman at the prison. Did he look sad or lonely? Because that's the, that's why. To me, he did. I mean, to me, he looked lost. Uh, Looked like a, you know, solo figure. He stood out because that's all we were looking at. But he looked very sad. The, The countenance, demeanor, all that to me. And it was quick. I mean, I'm not saying we dwelled there long. We were passing through. Uh, but, you know, when, when, you're, when your guard points out to you that that's Mark Hoffman, then I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, the interest level just went through the roof for me. I just wish it, lot, they would have ahead. done the whole six-hour documentary like they were going to. I know the BBC told them no, which brings me back to a subject I won't get into, but uh, dumbing down a society, but I really think they should have done a six hour documentary. I agree. And I, I did thought, think it was going to be longer when I saw it was only three nights uh, or three hours or two nights for me. You know what I mean? Uh, three parts. I thought, how could they tell this story so quickly when other documentaries I've watched at least four episodes, you know, three seemed like, selling short the the details of like I had lunch today with my bosses and they all saw it uh the people I work for and they had so many questions that were 
left unanswered for them. They, they, one of the questions was, why did he feel he had to k- kill Steve Christensen? You know, I'm like, okay, if you miss that <laughs> part, I mean, that's a big part, right? Because I said his world was coming undone, but they felt that they glossed over that even. And I was like, okay, that, you're right. It needed more substance, more meat on the bone. I think I know why. I mean, uh, the, to me, there's no clear answer, but I think it's because he was going to buy that. Or, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I've read the Salamander letter. I don't know the exact reason other than the fact that he was going to be the middleman of of uh, making yeah. sure that the document deal was going to go through. Yeah. That's right. And, 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 and he, it was... Mark was becoming exposed at that point as uh, the documents not being uh, legitimate. So, yeah. Well, a couple more questions. And then uh, if you don't mind, stay with me after the podcast. I do want to talk to you about some things. Uh, Both you and uh, both Michelle and Marshall, uh, I'll let you answer this question as the way you want. What do you like about being a member of the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints? Oh, that's a loaded question, isn't it? There's so many, <laughs> there's so many things. Um, I, I think for me, Kevin, and, and where my testimony, my spirit is, is I'm very basic. And so what I, what I love about the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the, the ability to be together. Um, you know, our families, the family unit, the, um, just the strength that we have, um, Marshall and I are a blended family. We call it our Brady Bunch family. Um, we have six kids and five of those six are married. So we have 11 kids if we're counting our in-laws and we've got, um, we'll have number 10 grandbaby coming um, this September. So oh, family wow. is huge to us and it's super important. And, you know, we don't take lightly the, the patriarch and the matriarch roles that we have. And, and a lot of that is for me, the foundation of that has been instilled in me in the way that my parents raised me. And um, I, I have a, just a very strong testimony of, of doing the right thing, of, of treating people kindly, of understanding that everybody has a different um, situation and experience and it's not our place to judge them. You know, we, you hear the, the saying, you know, can't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his mo- moccasins. And there is truth in that, isn't there? There, there's so much truth. You know, and I mentioned early and when we were talking that you know I went through my own sort of refiner's fire, and I have an undeniable testimony of my Savior, of Joseph Smith, of the Book of Mormon, and I just, I, my prayer is that as a mother, I can be that example to not only our own children. Um, I can be a supportive and a, a loving wife and, and to the community of people that I associate with. Yeah. Well, my, answer, my answer is simple. It's, it's the movies. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm supposed to say that because of the, you know, <laughs> no, uh, cer- certainly movies are a big part of my life, but as, as far as the, the church is concerned, I, uh, when I first, you know, came in contact with members of the church and, and, and the doctrine, something was different. That's all I can say. It was, it felt 
uh, different. It felt peaceful. It felt right. And I just always revert back to that. If I ever think something different, I'm like, nope, the, the, the feeling of peace, of contentment, of, of knowing, following certain principles will make you happier. And when you don't, they don't. There's truth to that. I mean, it's a solid truth too, because if, if you are, you know, follow a certain path, certain things happen. And if you follow a different path, other things happen. It just depends on how you want to feel. And, and I know my journey in the, in the, in the church uh, has told me every single time that if I follow the doctrine and if I am obedient, I do the things I'm supposed to do in a simple, simple way, I'm blessed for it. And that's it. <laughs> I mean, there's, and that's, and that's been my journey. And it's, it, believe me, it's not come without my share of missteps and mistakes, but those things have shaped me to be even stronger and better than I was before. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to end this podcast here. Thank you so much, uh, Marshall Michelle, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's been our pleasure. Thanks for having us and letting us be part of your show. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully uh, the next podcast, I will talk about Mark Hoffman with either myself or with Brent Ashworth, who has been on the podcast before. Wow. And I will talk to you all later, folks. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life Podcast. If you want to make a suggestion, comment, or to recommend a guest, email Kevin Williams at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Be sure to check out his Facebook page, LDS Life Podcast.